Hey there, welcome to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, last week, new images from the Toxic Avenger remake was released online, and I have to temper my excitement because it looked pretty good. Now for the uninitiated, Winston Goose is a janitor at a health club who's diagnosed with an illness. He's unable to afford treatment, so he falls into a toxic waste pit and gets transformed into the Toxic Avenger. It stars Peter Dinklage as the titular character. He has a son, Wade, played by Jacob Tremblay. I was especially impressed with Elijah Wood as Fritz Garbinger. I'm getting Penguin vibes from Batman Returns, and that's a good thing. It's produced by Legendary Pictures and Troma Entertainment, a film company that creates B-movies filled with surrealism and gore. Best known for The Toxic Avenger, Class of Newcomb High, Bloodsucking Freaks, Surf Nazis Must Die, Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, and Tromeo and Juliet. Yes, all classics. Many of the films take place in Tromaville, a fictional city in New Jersey which has the moniker Toxic Chemical Capital of the World. The low-budget studio has featured some high-quality talent in early roles, including Kevin Costner, Paul Servino, Samuel L. Jackson, and Billy Bob Thornton. Made in 1984, I really love the original. This movie falls right into my wheelhouse. It's completely cheesy, completely violent. The special effects were special, but overall, it's a really good time. That is what Trauma Entertainment is about. It was co-founded by Michael Hertz and Lloyd Kaufman, who, let's just say, is a character. And next year is their 50th anniversary. The new Toxic Avenger premiered at Fantastic Fest on September 21st, but I'm not seeing any theatrical or streaming release dates yet. But keep on the lookout. It's got a really good cast, which also includes Kevin Bacon. And so far, the reviews have been pretty positive. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. In this episode of the podcast, I'm re-watching and reviewing... Miami Vice, from 1984. The series was created by Anthony Yurkovich, who worked on Starsky and Hutch, Heart to Heart, Private Eye, and won three Primetime Emmy Awards for Hill Street Blues. 
The pilot episode, Brothers Keeper, was directed by Thomas Carter, who helmed Metro, Save the Last Dance, Coach Carter, episodes of Fame, St. Elsewhere, and won three Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series for Equal Justice, and Outstanding Made-for-Television Movie, Don King, Only in America. The screenplay was written by the creator, Anthony Yurkovich. It co-stars Don Johnson as Detective James Crockett, he was born in Flat Creek, Missouri, and raised in Wichita, Kansas. He attended the University of Kansas for a year before relocating to San Francisco, California, and enrolling in the American Conservatory Theater. He appeared in episodes of Sarge, The Bold Ones, and Young Dr. Kildare, before his first starring vehicle in The Harad Experiment, with Tippi Hedren, who would become his mother-in-law three years later when he married Melanie Griffith, the first time. He would bounce between film and television before landing the lead role in Miami Vice in 1984. This new exposure would open up the doors for parts in Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, Paradise with Melanie Griffith on their second marriage, and Tin Cup. He would return to television in 1996 with Nash Bridges. His filmography includes Machete, Django Unchained, Book Club, and Knives Out. And Philip Michael Thomas, who portrays Detective Ricardo Tubbs. He was born in Columbus, Ohio, but raised in San Bernardino, California. He started acting in his local church's theater group. He earned a scholarship to Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama, before transferring to the University of California, Riverside. He was cast in a theater production of Hair, after which he dropped out of school to pursue acting as a career. He appeared in feature films Come Back Charleston Blue, Stigma, and Book of Numbers, and series Griff, Good Times, Toma, and Policewoman. His breakthrough role was in the musical Sparkle, with Flashdance vocalist Irene Cara. After a successful run on Miami Vice, he was cast in A Little Piece of Sunshine, River of Stone, We Are Angels, and reunited with Don Johnson on Nash Bridges. He was the spokesperson for Psychic Readers Network, before being replaced by Call Me Now, Miss Cleo. You'd think he would have seen it coming. This is what I remember. White blazers over neon t-shirts. The memorable opening credits with Palm Trees, Crystal Blue Waters, and of course, the synth-heavy theme song by Jan Hammer. Speaking of songs, I know this series was one of the first to incorporate modern music into the episodes. One that takes me back is You Belong to the City by Glenn Frey, which was specifically written for the show, although in season two. Now I'm heading off to watch the episode. This is what I forgot. The random alligator named Elvis who lives with Detective Crockett, there is no memory of that. In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins was used very effectively. I didn't realize how dark the show was, especially in the beginning. The colors were pretty subdued, especially in New York, but that's par for the course, I think. I'm used to the series looking like an 80s picture day backdrop. So let's jump into it. In New York City, Detective Ricardo Tubbs tails Esteban Calderon, a powerful drug dealer and leader of a cartel, to a swanky bar. He pays off a waiter to spill drinks on Calderon and follows him to the men's room, but is interrupted by security guards, long enough for Calderon to escape. In Miami, Detective James Crockett is undercover as a drug runner who's bringing in a big buyer from Los Angeles, played by his partner, Eddie Rivera. 
They meet with Corky Fowler, a low-level dealer, who has connections with a drug kingpin called the Colombian. But Fowler tells him that he is a new pipeline and is cutting the Colombian out from the deal. Rivera flashes the cash, and Eddie takes him to the stash. But an explosion is rigged up to the trunk lock, killing both parties. Crockett believes that the Colombian is involved and was tipped off, and tracks down an informant, Leon Jefferson, who lets him know that, while he can't get him close to the kingpin, he can offer a piece of the shipment coming in tonight. When they arrive, they meet with a dealer, Teddy Prentice, who is actually James Crockett undercover, who's come to Miami in search of Calderon, when they come to realize that both Crockett and Tubbs are looking for the same man. Here's a quote without context. I can't let you handle all the bad karma by yourself. Miami Vice was a pretty strong pilot. I think it was a little confusing because you had all these cops undercover, so if you're not familiar with the series or the main characters, you might be confused as to who's on whose side. But the show really picked up when Crockett and Tubbs finally met and decided to team up together. That's where you got to see the chemistry between Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas. They had great rapport, witty dialogue, a back and forth. I can see that being the crux of the series going forward. They had a couple of fight sequences, which were a little cheesy. Chase scenes, which seem probably slow for today's standards. But overall, I think it kept the excitement. The supporting cast includes Sandra Santiago, Michael Talbot, and Olivia Brown, who appeared in all episodes of the series' run. Detective Lieutenant Marty Castillo, portrayed by Edward James Olmos, appeared in the sixth episode of season one and would remain until the show's finale. Now for a little trivial trivia. Jimmy Smits was in the running to play Ricardo Tubbs, but after he lost the role, he was cast in the pilot as Eddie Rivera, the first partner of Crockett. The pilot episode of Miami Vice was filmed in New York City and, not surprisingly, Miami, Florida. The cinematography was captured by Robert E. Collins, whose filmography includes the Kentucky Fried Movie, Superman, Octopussy, and won two Primetime Emmy Awards for this series, and the special Peggy Fleming at Sun Valley. It was edited by David Rosenblum, who worked on Rudy, Blue Chips, Primal Fear, Deep Impact, The Insider, and David Solomon, known for Hill Street Blues, Matlock, and Perry Mason TV movies. The score was composed by Jan Hammer, who wrote the music for A Night in Heaven, Secret Admirer, Tales from the Crypt, and was nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards for this series. The soundtrack featured songs by The Rolling Stones, Rockwell, Cyndi Lauper, and Phil Collins. The runtime is 1 hour 36 minutes. The pilot was an extended episode, which was split into two parts when airing in syndication. Miami Vice was nominated for 20 Primetime Emmy Awards, winning four for cinematography, film sound editing, art direction, and supporting actor in a drama series for Edward James Olmos. On the Ski Index, I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. Yes, I'm dinging it a little for being a double episode. Add half a star if you don't mind but I think it's a solid start. The series was on for five seasons, 114 episodes from 1984 to 1990. If you've seen Miami Vice and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post throwback clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. 
Before there were safety rules and regulations, toy companies had no problems creating playthings that were obvious choking hazards. And nothing was the perfect size to be lodged down a child's throat than micro-machines. Launched in 1986 by Galoob, the mini cars, trucks, motorcycles, and boats were no larger than a peanut and came in all kinds of vehicle models. They were brightly colored, which didn't help if you ever dropped one, because they were so small that the micro-machine wouldn't be found until your mom rolled over it with a vacuum cleaner. As their popularity grew, there were licensing deals with Star Wars, Star Trek, X-Men, and James Bond. Playsets, pocket portables, and storage containers would follow. For a few years, micro-machines were the largest selling car toy line, far ahead of competitors Hot Wheels and Matchbox. The success was, in part, due to the clever marketing campaign featuring Motormouth, John Mashita Jr., who fast-talked through all the details of micromachines with lightning speed. If people were wondering when ADD started, it was by my generation watching these commercials. Micromachines crossed into pop culture. They were featured prominently in the John Hughes movie Home Alone, when Kevin scattered them across the floor for the wet bandits to slip on. In 1991, the first video game was released featuring the vehicles racing on unconventional tracks. Six additional games were to follow. In 1992, the Micro Machines brand was extended to action figures called Z-Bots, but with competition from Kenner, who created Microverse, which had licensing deals with DC superheroes, Transformers, and other popular movies of the day, it was only a matter of time before their popularity waned, and Galoob was bought by Hasbro and the Micro Machines toys were discontinued. I've selected a couple of clips about Micro Machines, and they're all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Weird Science. Written and directed by John Hughes, who ruled the decade of the 80s with hits like Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Underrated Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and even though it was technically released in 1990, the production was in 1989, so I'm including it on the list. Holiday favorite, Home Alone. Any writer-director in Hollywood would be pleased with half of that output. The movie was based on the comic Made of the Future by Al Feldstein, which appeared in Weird Science magazine. The title track was written by Danny Elfman and performed by his new wave band Oingo Boingo and couldn't be more 80s. With his parents away for the weekend, Wyatt Donnelly and his best friend Gary Wallace attempt to create their dream woman by hacking into government servers for the power to bring her to life, with the hopes she will boost their popularity. It stars member of the Brat Pack and John Hughes' go-to, Anthony Michael Hall, Elon Mitchell Smith from Journey to the Center of the Earth, and model Kelly LeBrock of The Woman in Red and Hard to Kill fame. It also features Bill Paxton as Wyatt's brother Chet, this was coming off of The Terminator, where he played an equally obnoxious character. The bullies Max and Ian were portrayed by Robert Rustler from A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and Robert Downey Jr., who's never been heard of again. This is what I would call a Mad Libs movie. It seems like John Hughes just took a bunch of ideas, filled in a couple of blanks, and had himself a film. What if there was a rocket ship? 
How about a biker gang with the guy from The Hills Have Eyes? Poop monster, anyone? Despite the weirdness, it actually has some heart, and the ending can give you the feels. The acting is a lot of fun. You can actually see the actors breaking character in a couple of scenes. Elon's the worst, but Anthony Michael Hall has to cover his face a couple of times as well. And Kelly LeBrock was in peak form in this movie. Not only is she beautiful, but she's charming, great sense of humor, and her character stands up for what's right. There aren't many movies that I have a distinct memory of watching for the first time, but for some reason, I know exactly where I was. I was with my best friend Eric, who lived around the block from my grandparents. We were in his basement. It was sometime in the afternoon, so we were watching a TV-edited version of the movie. But I remember both of us laughing hysterically. We loved everything about this film. It's the chaos that only preteens and teenagers can appreciate, especially if you grew up during the late 70s and 80s. There was a television spinoff that lasted for five seasons, 88 episodes, from 1994 to 1998, and like the movie, has developed a cult following. There has been talks of a sequel or remake, but like the Beatles said, let it be. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and the review. The series was created by Anthony Yurkovich, who worked on Skarsky, Skarsky and Hutch. <laughs> he would bounce between film and television before leading the land role. Ugh. There has been talks of a sequel or remake. Remake. And even though it was technically released in 1990, the production was in 1989, so I'm including it on the list. Holiday favorite, home improvement. Ugh. That took a lot of breath.